0: Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you all very much for coming this evening. And uh, welcome to the second um, in our series on uh, the Friday seminar series here at the Middle East Centre. Those of you who will have attended the opening um, uh, uh, panel discussion uh, last week uh, will have heard that uh, Eugene Rogan explained that our, um, our Friday seminar series this term is really looking at um, key issues and conflicts in the Middle East uh, and North Africa. And we're doing so by bringing together a panel of um, specialists on each of the issues and conflicts um, on the particular issue that we are looking at. People who follow the issues um, and have followed the issues Um, for uh, many years and followed on a day-to-day basis to really give you the sort of in-depth detail and nuance that often is missing from a lot of the more mainstream coverage uh, of the issues. We opened last week by looking at the conflict in Syria and we return this week to look at another um, ongoing conflict, uh, that um, in Libya. Now, given the press of events, not only in the Middle East region, but also globally, Libya has really sort of slipped down the headlines and, in fact, has often disappeared from the news altogether, but this does not mean that it, there is less going on there and that what is happening there um, does not have the same importance as other, other areas, or in fact, um, does not have a, a global importance. As we will hear, no doubt, from our panelists this evening, um, we will see that the conflict in Libya contains many of the same elements that, that we saw in Syria. Factional conflict, the presence of Daesh, Islamic State, um, the struggle for resources, the intervention of often competing regional actors and increasing involvement from Russia, um, and a, also a source of a major flow Of refugees and migrants. So there are many parallels uh, with what we saw uh, last week in Syria. Now we're very pleased to have a very distinguished and very well-informed panel uh, joining us this evening. Um, At the end of the panel I'm very pleased to welcome Lydia Sizer. Uh, Lydia is a senior consultant at the Minas Associates in London. She's also a former desk officer for Libya at the United States uh, Department of State. And she's worked at a number of prominent think tanks, including CSIS in Washington, the American Enterprise Institute, and the Search for Common Ground. And she's the author of numerous reports and articles um, on Libya. Next down, we have John Hamilton. Uh, John is Director of Cross-Border Information, a consultant and publishing organization focusing on uh, Africa and the Middle East. He is a specialist on North Africa uh, with a particular focus working on Libya. And he uh, writes and publishes especially um, on energy issues. He can co-authored a chapter entitled North Africa's Energy Challenges um, in a volume um, on North African politics, continuity, uh, continuity and um, change, but was published in 2015. And I think what we often hear the refrain about the Middle East, well, of course, it's all about the oil, isn't it? Well, it's very good to have someone like John who can actually answer that question uh, in in an informed uh, informed way. Next to me is Mary Fitzgerald, a journalist and researcher specializing in the Euro-Mediterranean region with a particular focus on Libya. Mary has covered the the 2011 uprisings in Libya uh, uh, against the Gaddafi regime on the ground and has closely followed and written about uh, developments in Libya since then. Her reporting and analysis has featured in a host of major news sources and, and, and journals, including The Guardian, The Economist, The Washington Post, uh, and The Irish Times. And she contributed to, to the 2015 volume, uh, The Libyan Revolution and Its Aftermath, which was uh, edited by Brian McQuinn and a certain Peter Cole, who did the MPhil and Modern Millicent Studies here in 2011. I couldn't resist that plug for Peter. So as you see, we have an extremely... Uh, well-informed and well-placed panel um, to discuss the issue of an ongoing conflict in Libya. And the overall division of of Labour is that uh, uh, Lydia will start off discussing particularly the broader issues, the broader conflict and scene setting, uh, and what are the the issues at stake more broadly um, in Libya. Mary will then look predominantly at security issues and the implications of that. And John, then we'll look at particularly the economic dimension, particularly the, the issue of energy. Um, please please join me in welcoming our panelists this evening. Thank
1: you. So I'm going to be talking briefly about the origins of the political crisis, why we are where we are today, and then talking about the political dialogue process that happened in reaction to the crisis Uh, followed by a discussion about why the dialogue um, has been unsuccessful to date, and finally, some possible future political scenarios. So where do we go from here in Libya? So I'm going to start in late 2013. Uh, The optimism about the revolution has faded, and uh, Libya is plagued by a lot of insecurity, especially in the east. And at the same time, there's a lot of Lack of faith in governing institutions like the parliament, the GNC government, or sorry, General National Congress, um, and the government itself under Prime Minister Ali Zedan. Um In Tripoli itself, insecurity is rife. The prime minister himself was kidnapped in his pajamas in October 2013. Um, and so there were increasing calls for the GNC to step down and make way for a new parliament. So the GNC put together a committee, and that committee decided to go forward with, uh, to suggest elections for a new parliament, which would end up happening in June 2014. Uh, But at the same time as all these deliberations were being considered about whether and how to elect a new parliament, uh, the political crisis was deepening. So in February 2014, you had uh, General Khalifa Haftar's televised coup which was largely not taken very seriously. Um, but over the coming months, he was able to put together uh, allies, and he announced what he called Operation Dignity, or Karama, in May of that year. So the political crisis was intensifying and in becoming out-and-out war um, between Operation Dignity and what would become its main rival, Libya Don, or Fajr Libya. Fajr Libya. After the elections, things, the tensions between factions in Libya were so bad that uh, the faction in Tripoli, led by the General National Congress and its head, Nouri Abu uh refused to recognize the new parliament, the House of Representatives. By September 2014, you had two governments in Libya one in Tripoli and one in Tobruk and Beda. So during this time the international community was watching the situation in Libya with increasing concern um, and the UN announced in June that it would be facilitating a political dialogue process to overcome the conflict and create a unity government. And those negotiations started off in September 2014 in Gadamas and included uh, a group called the Political Dialogue Committee which included key influencers in Libyan society, as identified by the international community. Um, and those negotiations uh, were ongoing for months and months, iterative meetings, multi-track, including both, including not just the political dialogue committee itself, but also political parties, tribal leaders, local governments, um, and the like. And ultimately, it culminated in the political agreement of 2015, which happened in December 2015 when the political dialogue committee announced that it had decided that there would be a presidency council with a government of national accord that would be the new executive of a unity government that the house of representatives that replaced the GNC would remain the legitimate parliament and that there would be a new institution called the state council which would be a purely consultative body to absorb a lot of the former GNC now there were many inherent weaknesses in the political political agreement or else we wouldn't have the political crisis today. The first was that militias were not uh, incorporated into the process, making implementation of the agreement very difficult. The second was that key leaders rejected it. So people like Khalifa Haftar um, and his ally in the House of Representatives, the speaker, Aguila Saleh. And on the other side, you had Grand Mufti Sadiq giryani and the head of the GNC, whose name is Nouria Abu Safmayn, all these people opposed the agreement. It also had a solution that felt imposed on Libyans by an unelected political dialogue committee and the West, and it could have been more transparent to have more legitimacy on the ground. Importantly, I also think that the agreement lost the confidence of the Libyan people because of a controversy surrounding the mediator at at a critical time in the negotiations, and this is what was known as Leone Gate, so the special envoy at the time, Bernardino Leon, was uh, caught in leaked emails negotiating a plum position for himself in the United Arab Emirates while he was also facilitating a solution to the Libya conflict. So, uh, and the UAE is considered a, a pretty sensitive uh, external actor in the conflict. So that really lost him, lost him and the process a lot of confidence. Um, and finally, the way the agreement was structured, there was a single point of failure for the agreement with the House of Representatives because it relied on that, or, that institution to legitimize the new unity government. But most importantly, the timing wasn't right for effective negotiations in September 2014 or since. Re- according to rightness theory, parties will only resolve conflicts when they are ready. This is what's called as a mutually hurting stalemate by William Zartman. And at the time, every side in the conflict felt that its alternative to a negotiated solution was better than what they were getting through the negotiated process. The West can't want peace in Libya more than the Libyans themselves. And the problem is that since 2014, powerful factions have had attractive alternatives to a negotiated solution. Because of this situation, each side has tried to manipulate negotiations instead of engaging in real dialogue, supporting it only when it would be advantageous for them and their alternative to a negotiated solution, entering into a dangerous, dangerous cycle of what uh, Roger Fisher and William Ury at Harvard have called positional bargaining. This is really common in intractable conflicts and characterized by trading on positions instead of finding mutually beneficial solutions to problems. As a result, the Libyan negotiations have been plagued by uh, what Fisher and Uri called dirty tricks, that is, lies, threats, refusals to negotiate, excessive demands, delay tactics, personal attacks, with everyone getting more and more emotionally invested in their positions. After the agreement in 2015, uh, the House of Representatives stalled and stalled and stalled on recognizing this new unity government. And finally, um, based on a vote that wasn't entirely recognized by the House of Representatives. The Presidency Council and the Government of National Accord felt it had enough legitimacy to come into Tripoli in March 2016. And so by March 2016 we now have three governments in Libya. We have the Rump GNC and its government in Tripoli, we have the new unity government in Tripoli as well, and then in the east we still have the House of Representatives and its government which is increasingly falling under the control of Khalifa Haftar. Without local legitimacy, the Presidency Council has found it basically impossible to meet public needs, either through providing public services like electricity and fuel or through security. So even Tripoli itself is constantly plagued by militia infighting. Uh, The Presidency Council is also fragmented internally with many people either boycotting or resigning. And at the same time, you have Haftar building his own political leverage. So by September 2016, he had control over the eastern oil terminals and was able to say, I'm the one who can provide enough security to keep the oil flowing. And at the same time, he's been courting and being courted by people in Russia and the United States, increasing his external leverage. And he's been waging a campaign of expansion south and west. With a new threat of civil war and increased tensions, the political dialogue committee has been revived amid conversations about reforming or rejecting the political agreement of 2015 in order to overcome the impasse. New dialogue efforts are underway, both in Tunisia and in Egypt, and there are, there are recent, more recently there have been meetings among regional actors in uh, Cairo, upcoming in Algeria, and most recently today in Congo. Um, Discussions among the Political Dialogue Committee and among people in the House of Representatives is about the size of the Presidency Council, how much power it has, especially over the armed forces, which is presumed to be led by Khalifa Haftar in the future, um, and the role of the State Council, um, which is the organization that absorbs the GNC. But we're still largely in, a, in this cycle of positional bargaining. For example, there was a recent secret recording of a private meeting between the, special envoy, the UN Special Envoy and a member, a pro-Haftar member of the Presidency Council, which was basically intended to humiliate the uh, mediator in the conflict. Haftar has also uh, threatened two senior Western officials that his intent is to take over the whole country. In addition, there are continued statements from some Islamists, not all Islamists, that including Haftar in a unity government is a deal breaker. So where do we go from here? Much will depend on the behavior of external actors in changing local factions' calculus about their alternatives to a negotiated solution. Um, Some of these positions are evolving, for example, in Trump's United States and in Russia, which has become more and more publicly supportive of Khalifa Haftar. Uh, And we can talk more about the United States and Russia and their role. In uh, in Libya during the discussion, if that's okay, other external factions are looking to these actors in terms of how how much they support one faction or another. So in the east, you have a lot of support from Egypt and the UAE going towards Haftar and his allies, political allies. And in the west, you have had in the past a lot of support from countries like Qatar and Turkey to factions there. Um, How that changes over time will be a a huge determinant of the future scenario. Support for the GNA itself, the Government of National Accord is very fragile, is becoming smaller and smaller over time. And um, the main supporters, the most, the strongest supporters of the GNA have been Southern European states like Italy, um, who have the most to lose if if Libya really does fall apart. So given the current balance of power and external environment, there are a number of future political scenarios of varying degrees of likelihood. There could be a weak GNA that finally gets legitimacy with a strong, mostly independent, unintegrated military led by Khalifa Haftar. There could also be a military government under Haftar with significant resistance and inevitable insecurity throughout the country. Um, There could be continued chaos, some more of the same of what we have now with multiple governments vying for legitimacy. And under the least likely category, I think is um, formal division of the country and a temporary uh, monarchy, the temporary restoration of monarchy, which is an option that comes up from time to time, but is never taken terribly seriously. In summary, it will take significant international attention and Libyan political will to avoid unsavory scenarios in 2017, and I'm not terribly optimistic.
2: Thank you, Michael. Um, I think optimism is in short supply for every Libya watcher these days. Alas... Thank you all for coming. I said to Michael earlier, a 5 p.m. slot on a Friday is a, is a tough slot, so it's good to see a, a nice turnout. Thank you all. So I wanted to start the discussion on uh, Libya's security sector, although I would hesitate to refer to it as a sector. We should maybe call it or refer to it as a security landscape. By giving a few key points that have been pertinent since 2011. So since the fall of Gaddafi as a result of the uprising of 2011, there has been no state monopoly of force um, in Libya. Instead, what you have is a highly fragmented security landscape comprised of a constellation of of armed groups. I will use the word militia later on in my discussion, bearing in mind that it's a very loaded term in Libya and can be seen as, as derogatory by many Libyans but basically you have a constellation of armed groups across the country that are loyal to region or town or tribe or political affiliation very often they're loyal to a mix of all the above a smaller number are ideological and due to an ill-fated decision by the first uh, the transitional authorities after the fall of Gaddafi in late 2011 Everyone is on the state payroll. That is, apart from um, ISIS. I will get into the presence of ISIS in Libya later on. But pretty much every member of an armed group in Libya is on the state payroll, receives a state salary. And that is one of the key challenges in terms of any future DDR programs in Libya, It's also kind of fed into the the political stalemate that Lydia has outlined, the way the political and the armed conflicts have, have converged, particularly over the last two years. It's also important to bear in mind that the terms army and militia mean very different things to different Libyans. As I mentioned earlier, the word militia is a very loaded term in in Libya, seen as derogatory by most Libyans. Uh, Members of militias, if they see uh, journalists reporting using the word militia, um, they will really resent uh, this, so it can cause all kinds of issues. But this idea that the terms army and militia mean different things to different Libyans has been particularly um, uh, the case since 2014, when you had that political power struggle um, erupt that soon became an armed conflict. And now you have a situation where Khalifa Haftar, whom Lydia referred to, based in eastern Libya, um, claims to command the uh, so-called Libyan National Army, a self-styled Libyan National Army, the group that he um, commands is not national in any um, respect and it is not accepted by military officers across Libya. Indeed, many military officers in Western Libya reject Haftar and reject him in any role uh, in any future military. Supporters of Haftar say that what he leads is a national army. His opponents say what he leads is actually just another militia. If you look at the nature of of the LNA, what it comprises is a mix of military units, units from the former regime and then more tribal and federalist orientated armed groups from eastern Libya that basically came under the umbrella of the LNA and were were co-opted. So it's quite, uh, uh, you also have new recruits that have been trained over the last year and a half in particular in, in Jordan. So it's quite a a hodgepodge and um, there are questions over how strong the esprit de corps is within the LNA and whether it can actually be one of the building blocks for a future inclusive truly national army. Another challenge of building um, a unified and truly national army that would have civilian oversight is the fact that Haftar refuses up to now the idea of civilian oversight of a military. So to look at Haftar and the LNA in more detail, um, Haftar, as Lydia outlined, uh, burst on the scene in, in, uh, to great effect in February 2014, the Valentine's Day coup that, that wasn't. Um, when that failed, he later surfaced in eastern Libya where he latched on to the grievances of people in Benghazi where Insecurity basically had reached such a level, there were a series of assassinations and bombings, the people were looking for somebody to save Benghazi. In stepped Haftar, uh, he was the person that people believed would be the answer to the security problem in Benghazi. And he managed to garner a lot of popular support at the time. I remember spending um, half of election day in 2014 in Benghazi. And many people there telling me, that um, they weren't interested in voting. They had pretty much given up on democracy, and what they wanted was a, a solution to the security problem, and that's why they were backing Hefter. Those were the very early days of Hefter's operation. I re- interviewed Hefter just a few weeks into his operation, and I can remember after the meeting asking one of his closest advisors. What was it exactly that Haftar wanted? What was Haftar's endgame? And asking him whether this you know, war on militias in Benghazi that he had launched, was that a pretext for, for um, more further ambitions? And this advisor said, yes, Haftar wants to rule Libya. And what would, be wa- what would be wrong with that? We need a strong man. So that was very much part of the conversation in Haftar's internal cir- inner circles at the beginning. It wasn't part of the public narrative. What we've seen over the last six months to a year is Haftar's ambitions becoming more and more open and overt. So his allies, uh, including Ali Khatrani, Lydia mentioned earlier, have spoken openly about his wish to see uh, military rule in in Libya. A few days ago, the former uh, U.S. envoy to Libya, Jonathan Weiner, at an event at Carnegie in D.C., talked about how Haftar had told him that he believes he's the only one who can unite Libya and that he wants to take over the country. So Haftar's ambitions are now out there in in the open. The other narratives have, have fallen away. The problem is that Haftar exaggerates um, his strength and the extent to which he controls territory. In a recent interview with uh, an Italian newspaper, he claimed uh, to have over 50,000 men and to control 80% of Libya. Um, Both assertions um, are are inaccurate. Um, I often say that if every armed group in Libya had the actual numbers it claims to have, the population of B- Libya would probably be treble what it is, which is 6 million. So exaggerating numbers is is all part of, of the deal. Um, nevertheless, he's a key figure in the East. Um, I remember in 2014, uh, some of his supporters saying to me, uh, Heftar will be our CC. They were openly talking about him in those terms. We want a military strongman. We need a CC in, in Libya. What we've seen in recent weeks as well is um, a militarization, if you like, of the territory that Haftar controls in eastern Libya. And by militarization, I mean a replacing of elected mayors with military governors right across eastern Libya and a militarization of other bodies, including state bodies in the east. This militarization is welcomed by a significant number of people in eastern Libya and resisted, well, I should say resented by others, because resisting it, particularly openly in eastern Libya right now, can invite all kinds of uh, negative consequences. There is quite a repressive atmosphere in the east. A key component of Hefter's camp in eastern Libya, but a little documented one, because In many ways, it challenged the narrative that Heftar's camp wanted to put out there in 2014, that they were, and I can remember reading media reports referring to Heftar's forces as somehow liberal or secular, both terms that any Libya watcher will tell you are quite irrelevant to the Libyan context. But that narrative that basically they were liberal secular forces fighting Islamists um, was undermined by the fact that from the beginning, a key component of Heftar's campaign were um, ultra-conservative Salafist fighters uh, known colloquially in in Libya as Madkalis, after their spiritual leader who is um, a Saudi scholar. Um, So they have fought for Haftar in Benghazi and helped consolidate his influence in other parts of the east. He has introduced them into the security apparatus of eastern Libya in a way that is causing considerable disquiet amongst the population of the east. Some in in Benghazi who supported Haftar's operation in 2014 have gone as far as telling me that they supported Haftar to get rid of groups like Ansar al-Sharia, Um, an extremist group that was designated by the U.S. in 2014. They see these uh, ultra-conservative Salafists now who are armed, who have taken over mosques in Benghazi and other parts of eastern Libya. They've taken over the Alkaf, a religious endowments uh, ministry in in Benghazi, and are becoming very assertive, um, trying to assert their values, their their mores. Just um, today, I saw several activists in, in Benghazi Complain on social media about uh, Friday sermons that were given in mosques across Eastern Libya, denouncing secularism, and this shocked these activists in Benghazi. Um, One pointed out, "We, we have we fought terrorism only to see it replaced by another type of terrorism." So I would say that the the that um, Salafis, the armed Salafis, that are now um, an increasingly Key part of the scene in eastern Libya are something to watch. They also play into the security dynamics in western Libya. A number of the um, uh, militias in, in Tripoli. Um, contain these uh, mudkali uh, Salafists who share a lot of uh, similar views on the, on the current situation in, in Libya with those in the east. There's also a, a, a battalion, an armed group, that recently took part in the operation against ISIS in Sirte, drove it out of its stronghold there, that is predominantly mudkali salafist, raised a lot of concerns amongst the other groups that were taking on ISIS and Sirte because they seem to be well-funded, um, seem to have their own particular agenda. And all of this is the rise of these modkali salafis is causing concern across uh, the country. Some Libyans have gone as far as, as telling me that they see this as uh, a Trojan horse, if you like, for Saudi influence in the country. So I think it's, it's a dynamic that's, uh, that's certainly worth uh, watching. Also in eastern Libya, we see um, at the moment a notable um, anti-Western Um, and by that I mean Europe and the U.S. sentiment um, growing. Uh, Fed by propaganda from Haftar's camp, um, over the last year or two there has been a constant stream of of propaganda painting the Western powers as wanting to install an Islamist uh, regime in in Libya. Various um, Western officials and diplomats have been depicted as supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood echoes of the Egyptian scenario. They're very, very much, very much pronounced. And all of that has created a rather toxic atmosphere in eastern Libya. Um, a lot of suspicions about foreign NGOs, foreign en- uh, agendas, and a lot of it in recent weeks directed at Italy, um, because uh, Haftar and his camp sees Italy as taking sides. Uh, in the Libyan conflict, something that uh, Rome rejects. But recently it's interesting to see that the target very much of this propaganda is is Italy. The counter, if you like, to Haftar's camp um, and his armed uh, faction, the the self-styled LNA, is the fighting forces of the town of Misrata, which is a prosperous, uh, commercial, uh, coastal city in western Libya, it played a key role in the 2011 uprising, basically was subjected to a siege by Gaddafi's forces for months. That had a, a profound effect on the city in terms of there was a sense in Misrata that Misrata had sacrificed a lot during the, the uprising. And because of that, many key Misratan factions believed that they deserved, if you like, an outsized role in post-Gaddafi Libya, something that didn't sit easily with other towns and cities in in the country. Misrata has been uh, dominant in the coalition that took on ISIS and drove ISIS from, from Sirte, as I mentioned earlier. And again, that has um, caused some concerns that Misrata will again demand something, demand a greater say in, um, in the political situation because, again, of the sacrifice it feels um, that it has uh, given um, to, to drive ISIS from, from Sirte. There have been, in in recent months, hopes um, within the UN that it would be possible to forge a deal between key Misratan figures and Haftar. The idea being that if you were to bring um, the two together in some form of an alliance, that this would form um, a bedrock for um, a wider political settlement and the basis for what could be an inclusive national um, army in the future. And those hopes were making some progress in, in some ways, um, but in recent weeks I think those hopes have largely been dashed um, by a series of what we seen in Misrata, uh, provocative uh, actions by Haftar, including carrying out airstrikes on uh, Misratans in the town of Jufra, including a key figure from the Misratan. Uh, military council who was badly injured in one particular um, airstrike. So this is hardened attitudes in Misrata made the um, chances of a deal between Misrata and, and Haftar even more remote. Um, and I think that the evidence of this was an interview that Ahmed Matig, the Misrata and deputy prime minister in the unity government gave over the last week, where he, and usually he's not so trenchant, uh, not so strong with his language, but he described Heftar in this interview as um, a militia man with good propaganda. So quite a a blunt uh, denouncing of Heftar that really shows that the chances of a Misrata-Heftar deal for now um, look uh, rather uh, remote. I think going back to what Lydia said earlier about the effect of external dynamics, external actors, what I see in Libya right now, and I've heard this from Western diplomats, is there is a sense of a waiting game at the moment. The political factions, the armed factions, are biding their time to see how the Trump administration might bed down, to see what Libya policy under the Trump administration might look like. And there are certain Libyans who are already reaching out to the Trump administration, trying to see which buttons they might push to influence uh, uh, policy on on Libya. And I think one of the concerns here is that if we look at the people – in the Trump team already working on, on foreign policy. Um, some of you may have seen the, the reports over the last couple of days about a faction within uh, Trump's team led by uh, Mike Flynn, he's National Security Advisor, which is really pushing to have the Muslim Brotherhood designated as a terrorist organization. If this designation um, happens, uh, this is going to have a major impact on dynamics inside Libya. Why? Because since 2011, one of the most potent smears you can level at a political opponent in Libya is to accuse them of being Muslim Brotherhood, whether they are or not. So I, I always say actually the two most potent smears is to either describe your political opponent as Ehwan or Aslam. So if we, if we see the US designating the Muslim Brotherhood as a, as a terrorist organization, this for sure is going to affect the situation inside Libya, because I think you're going to see key Libyan actors. And Haftar, for example, since 2014, has been uh, very much anti-Muslim Brotherhood. In fact, at the beginning of his operation, he spoke more about the Muslim Brotherhood and the need to purge them from Libya than he did um, the militant groups like Ansar al-Sharia. In fact, he gave an interview at the beginning of his operation saying that the Muslim Brotherhood was the main enemy for him. So I think a lot of Libyans are waiting to see how um, Libya policy under the Trump administration may play out and then act accordingly. And by act accordingly, I mean politically and militarily. Just finally then, just to look at um, the, the question of ISIS, because... As, as somebody who reports and does research on, on Libya, I'm interested in terms of how the, the, the kind of the peaks and troughs of media interest in, in Libya. So the media will be interested in Libya when the migration story pops up again or when the um, ISIS story was, was there, people were interested in Libya. And the ISIS in Libya story is an interesting one in terms of I remember having many conversations with Libyans in early 2014, and I lived in, in Libya throughout 2014, the year of the great unravelling, as, as I call it. And I remember in January, February 2014, having a number of conversations with Libyans who are already raising concerns about what would happen in Libya when the Libyans we knew at that point had, were in northern Syria, had started to join uh, with, with ISIS there, what would happen when they started coming back. And until uh, 2014, Libya, uh, for those Libyans who joined ISIS, was seen not really as a prize or a place to uh, expand or to gain territory. It was kind of seen as somewhere you, you went back home for some rest and recreation, pretty much, to see your family Um, uh, spend time in Libya and then go back to Syria. That changed in 2014 when you had key ISIS figures, non-Libyans, coming to Libya, particularly the eastern city of Derna, they saw potential in Libya, they saw opportunity. And this happened to coincide with the, the, the political crisis we saw erupt in 2014. So the political vacuum that was created basically gave ISIS an opportunity to expand. And related to that, we saw, and I often argue that this is one of the reasons why ISIS expanded in the way it did in Libya, because you saw the politicization of the threat posed by ISIS. So many factions in Libya in 2011 who were caught up in that national political struggle were trying to paint their opponents as being in cahoots with ISIS. So the threat posed by ISIS, which was real and growing, was kind of ignored because people thought it was just a tactic to smear the people you were you were against and that was key to to isis actually expanding what's happened in uh, over the last year is we've seen uh, isis as i said driven um, from its stronghold in insert Gaddafi's former um, uh, birthplace and uh, we've seen it driven before that from derna which is where isis opened its first uh, affiliate in 2014 and and um, there there were ISIS elements among the forces who were fighting Khalifa Haftar in Benghazi. ISIS was one of the groups among many. There was a coalition uh, fighting Haftar in Benghazi since 2014. So now, today, ISIS in Libya is no longer controls territory, first of all. So it's no longer the the good kind of propaganda that they used to present Libya as in their, in their international propaganda. So back in 2015, ISIS regularly featured uh, Libya in its magazine Dabek, um, basically trying to get foreigners to, to flock to Libya as the new, the third uh, theater of, of the caliphate. Those days are over, and it's unlikely that ISIS will again control significant uh, territory in, in Libya. I've always argued that I believed estimates of the numbers of ISIS fighters in Libya were overstated. Going back again to what I said earlier about the politicization of ISIS in 2014, that led to a certain, I believe, exaggeration of the figures. So the the scale and presence of ISIS in Libya was not as as, uh, big as, as people thought. What we see now, however, is a scattering, a dispersal of ISIS, um, particularly down towards Libya's um, south, so uh, the southern region, porous borders, a region, vast open spaces that basically provide ideal havens for ISIS. What we're likely to see is ISIS in Libya transform itself into more of an insurgency style organization where it has hideouts in uh, sanctuaries in southern Libya but also sleeper cells in Tripoli and other major cities where it can carry out attacks. Uh, Just over 10 days ago, uh, there were U.S. airstrikes on camps about 20, 30 kilometers uh, south of of Sirte. Uh, That indicates that we're we're talking about an organization now that's more dispersed. So smaller camps in different parts of of the country still presenting a threat. But looking at the wider um, jihadist uh, landscape in in Libya and how that may evolve in, in the next years, What's interesting about the the jihadist landscape in Libya, aside from ISIS, is, first of all, you have three generations, as I often refer to them as. The the generation that went to Afghanistan in the late 1980s and the 90s. And there were many Libyans who went there uh, to Afghanistan at that time, including many who are now no longer involved in anything remotely like uh, jihadist activity or or not even Islamists. Um, But it was something that a lot of... Libyan men of a particular age did at that time, Um, and it's something that has tended to be a kind of a bonding experience for, for, for many of them since. Many of those um, who went to Afghanistan in the 80s and 90s uh, formed uh, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, a jihadist group that posed the most serious threat to Gaddafi um, during his regime, particularly in the 1990s, later entered into a, a reconciliation program in prison with the regime and was defunct by the time of the 2011 uprising. Figures from the LIFG took part in the uprising. And then in the transitional period, formed political parties and ran for elections um, themselves. Some of them served as deputy ministers in transitional um, uh, governments after Gaddafi. Second generation, those who went to Iraq after the invasion of Iraq in 2003. The third generation, those who went to um, Syria after 2011. And what's interesting about the second and third generation is the, the tension between those two generations and the first. So those from the first generation who engaged in a democratic uh, transition, who took part in, in, in uh, who formed, as I said, political parties, ran for election, etc., were denounced then by the second and third generation as, as, um, as traitors, um, and that caused an interesting um, tension uh, within that particular um, landscape. There is, in Libya, I have noted since uh, 2011, in certain parts of the country, an interesting subculture um, you could say a kind of a jihadist subculture whereby during the gaddafi regime because jihadist groups like the libyan islamic fighting group were the um, were amongst the few who were actually taking the fight to gaddafi they were um, assisted they were helped by uh, non-jihadist uh, libyans and they were seen in some cases as has been recounted to me in benghazi in particular Derna and ajdabia seen almost as folk heroes in certain social um, contexts. And that created an interesting subculture whereby um, you had men like that who were members of certain communities living in certain neighborhoods and uh, were were basically seen as very much part of, of the community. They then um, tended to draw younger men into um, those particular um, ideas. And I think that in Libya, the, the, the challenge posed, the, the radicalization challenge, if we can call it that, is something that cuts across the, the socioeconomic spectrum. I spent a lot of time in, in Benghazi before Heftar launched his operation in summer 2014, trying to uh, understand Ansar al as a social phenomenon. Um, because many young men in Benghazi were joining al Sharia from right across the socioeconomic spectrum. Um, You had teachers, doctors, engineers, etc. who were members of al Sharia, which uh, was basically formed as an armed group first, but then a wider kind of uh, social and uh, proselytizing charitable uh, organization. So while it was an armed group at the core, it also had a social base of thousands in Benghazi, which raised interesting questions over how it then should be tackled. So before Haftar launched his operation, which was a very much a, a scattergun operation that in my view, resulted in the radicalization of more young men in Benghazi because their families were targeted um, uh, very much, uh, for very often for very spurious reasons. Um, but there was a, an interesting discussion in Benghazi in the run-up to Heftar's operation over how to tackle Ansar al-Sharia. Do you, do you challenge them full-on militarily, um, which many thought would actually radicalize the, those who were more involved in it on a kind of a social and charitable level, Or do you try and peel away as many of those young men as possible who are not hardened ideological fighters and then take on the hardened core? And it was a very interesting discussion at the time, one that, of course, became completely moot once um, Haftar launched his operation. But I think, you know, moving forward, there is a conversation um, that needs to happen in, in Libya in terms of radicalization, of young men in Libya, the causes of that, and the factors that feed that, and an honest conversation about that where people move away from the labels that they tend to throw around, like Islamist or terrorist or extremist or whatever, and actually have an honest conversation about this. There are several cases in Eastern Libya of families who are uh, staunchly pro-Haftar and his operation, who themselves have had sons who have joined ISIS. That's the complicated social dynamic when it comes to um, the jihadist landscape in Libya. And unless that is engaged and an honest conversation is had about that, Libya's uh, militant challenge, I think, is going to evolve in very worrying ways. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Mary. Again, being able to give such a, a good and enormously comprehensive array of what's happening in the security situation showing us some of the nuances particularly about, for example, the Islamist dimension and the Salafi dimension to Hefta, but often don't make it through. He's portrayed as this big secular um, uh, as you said, uh, left liberal which does, again, neither, as you said, make sense. But thank you very much for that. And and John, to look at some of the economic and and energy issues. Thank
3: you. Michael, thank you. Um, I think it is probably true that I suffer from a certain uh, Deformation professionnelle when it comes to looking at Libya, because I, I do think it 's all about the oil, um, but I am an, an energy analyst, as you said. Um, obviously it's, it is also to do with the, the dreadful legacy of Gaddafi, the tribalism, to some degree between Islamism and secularism, the number of weapons, proxy interventions by uh, countries like the United Arab Emirates and and Qatar dreadful decisions by um, both the, the, the various governments that have tried to rule Libya and, and also by the Western powers and, and, and the UN. But whatever you want, whoever you are, whatever you want to do in Libya, whether you're, you're trying to build institutions or if you're uh, a tribal or a community or, or a militia leader and you're just trying to get uh, some, some, some benefit for, for, for your people or for yourself Um, if you're trying to impose a type of society or to create one um, you need resources uh, to succeed and one of the simple ways of looking at at Libya uh, and the fact that no one has been able to take control is simply down to the fact that uh, to date no one has really been able to take control of the resources to give them the power to to do what, what what they want to do but plenty of people have been able to get hold of Part of the resources um and and so there are many people who are doing extremely well in 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 libya right now uh because of that so briefly what are these uh resources before the revolution libya was producing 1.6 million barrels of oil a day to put that in contact saudi arabia produces about 10 million a day perhaps a bit more um but Libya was the, the largest producer in Africa. Another way of, of looking at it was that before the, the, the revolution and immediately afterwards when oil prices were uh, still extremely high, uh, Libya w- was grossing about 45 even $50 billion a year uh, from its oil. A lot of money, um, you might think. But there is a, a context. You have to... Th- to think about particularly in the way that the Libyans themselves think about their oil and the way they've tried to use it uh, since which is is 50 billion a lot of money uh, for a country of 5 million people well it could be but if you try and divide it up between everybody and just pay their salaries with it without any sort of investment or, or production um, or productivity it's not that much it's, it's 10,000 bucks each isn't it um Per person, uh, less than thirty less than thirty dollars a day, um, doesn't really buy you lunch in a in a, in a decent um, in you know in one of the decent hotels in in Tripoli. So Libya um, could be wealthy. Did think it was wealthy once, um, but if you're thinking about Libya and Libya's resources, you shouldn't think about it as a inherently wealthy wealthy country. Sort to do with how these uh, resources are controlled and used um, because of the the failures that have taken place uh, in that haven't the failures that haven 't happened the, the things that haven 't happened in Libya over the the past several years since the revolution. what has um, really emerged is a is a sort of almost accidental system of both controlling and abusing libya 's resources um, or but it's uh, very much a, a, a declining um, set of resources. Uh, so uh, I was at Chatham House just a couple of days ago, and the chairman of the, the National Oil Corporation, whose name is Mustafa Sanala, um, a very good man, and I think probably an honest man, um, and a man doing his best to try and run Libya's oil oil resources, presented a concept I think was very interesting. Um, and he, dis- he said that there's now a dual key um, which is controlling the, 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 the resources. This is because um, the, most of the, the physical control um, or certainly the security control over the, uh, the, the oil fields themselves is now in the hands of General Khalifa Haftar. However, the ability to export that oil and to make money out of it is still under the authority of the Government of National Accord. Um, and that is because the Government of National Accord is supported by um, United Nations Security Council resolutions, which mean that if anybody tries to export oil independently outside the, um, the official remit of, of the GNA, uh, those exports are illegal. And over the past yeah, there were about 43 attempts. Mr. Sonala said to to export oil illegally from 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 Libya, uh, from from the east, from areas controlled by General General Haftar, and every single one of them has failed. It's not possible to steal Libya's crude oil. Um, so uh, immediately after the revolution. Uh, the, the National Oil Corporation, a very cohesive um, at its heart a very cohesive and professional body, succeeded in rebuilding oil production quite quickly to close to what it had been before so during two thousand and twelve they, they did earn about forty five billion from from their oil since then, um, particularly in 2000, uh, starting in two thousand and thirteen uh, politics started uh, to, to destroy the resource um, capability. Compared, i um, um, including. And, and the other problem was that, as we all know, the oil price uh, has plummeted over the past couple of couple of years. So, uh, oil revenues uh, fell. To um, I can tell you exactly, 2013 it was 36 billion, still not too bad. 15 billion in 2014, $7.5 billion in 2015, and probably just over $4 billion, so one-tenth of what they were um, producing. That was th- for, for 2016, last year. Why did this happen? It wasn't only that the oil price fell. It was because various individuals realized that they could take control of terminals or fields and hold the government to ransom. To start with, this was just, we'll blockade the field until you employ another 10, 20... 50, 100 people from our tribe um, to give them a job. Uh, but it quickly um, has turned into something much more political, and the key individual in that was a man called Ibrahim al-Jadran, who uh, took control of the oil export terminals in an area called the Oil Crescent. Um, I haven't got the map anymore, but um, that's the, um, the big bay in the middle of Libya where most of the most of the oil resides. Javran su- succeeded in, in blockading all oil exports from, from this central oil-producing area for a good, a good couple of years and earned quite a lot of money out of it. But he, he started off claiming he was a federalist. Um, then he, he changed side too many times to really define who he was. Um, he, he, he made quite a bit of money for himself. But um, a key event took place in, in September this year when General Haftar succeeded in driving uh, Ibrahim al-Javran out of the oil crescent and he now controls the security over the oil but does that mean that Haftar has got control over the oil revenues no it doesn't because the oil rev- because of the the dual key that Mr. Sanala referred to oil revenues still go to the central bank of Libya in Tripoli and if you're thinking about what really matters in Libya to do with resources, it, you have to think as much about revenue and money as you have to do about physical oil. The fact is, National Oil Corporation is still a cohesive entity. It operates, it produces as much oil as it can, and it has started to increase production quite, quite significantly over the past few months. It's up to about half of, of its potential maximum at, at present, but... Those revenues go to the central bank, and the question is what happens to them after that. The truth is, a lot of the, um, the, the really negative influences on, on Libya's uh, political development are those people who are making money out of um, sucking the um, resources out of the treasury. They do this by um, claiming that they have many, many more people in their militia's um, than they really do, something Mary referred to. But it's not just a question of boasting about how many people you've got and, and pretending. It's also a question of sending in the bill to the central bank and saying, send me their wages. Um, people are making money out of this, a lot of money. Uh, oil, f- not oil, rather fuel smuggling. Uh, Libya imports a vast amount of fuel. Plenty of it gets reshipped onto a, a small converted fishing um vessels and re exported down the coast of Tunisia to Malta. Um, from from Malta it's it's going to, to Italy. The the with with mafia involvement this has been demonstrated. The oil is going down into other um, parts of the Sahel well the fuel I should say. Uh, these resources are being sucked out of um, out of Libya at a time it can it can, cannot afford to um to 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 have this the, these, the, this, this money, they've take, taken away from it. The, um, the dual key, however, is an, an important, potentially positive uh, factor in, in, in the Libyan um, dynamic because it is one thing which uh, could potentially uh, provide a catalyst for some sort of communication and cooperation between General Haftar and the government of, of national accord. It is, however, imperfect, because Haftar um, does, not have full, he does not have full control. Uh, he's got plenty of leverage, um, but we have to ask the question also, who is behind Haftar's coalition in the East? He needs to pay people. He needs to, to keep them on his side if they're going to continue to be with him. Uh, uh, additionally, the government of national accord in, in Tripoli does not fully control the central bank of Libya. The, the governor is a man called Sadiq al-Kabir. He's also a person who has had many things said about him in terms of what his alliances are. He's one of the people who has been frequently described as being associated with the Muslim Brotherhood although um, I, I believe he probably is not. Um, he may also now have some sort of working relationship with General Haftar and with um, Mr. Sinalo at National Oil Corporation but these things um, are, are, are certainly not um, public, publicly evident. It's certainly something which we can sort of try and read into. So, can is there any way in which either side could enlarge their influence over these resources and use them to take control over um, over the whole country? Could Haftar extend his, his his authority, or could the or could the GNA? It's very hard to see how. Um, Either side is is going to be able to do that uh, very successfully. I think Haftar, if he wants to extend his authority, he can only really do it. I struggle to see how he could do it militarily. Maybe there's other views on that. I think he'd have to try and buy people off um, down in the south, for instance, or if he wants to move into Tripoli, he needs to buy their cooperation. So he needs more control over the resources. It's not evident to me that he has uh, sufficient um, control And how much time is there for these types of dynamics to play out? Part of that depends on how uh, successful Mr. Sanala, national oil corporation, is in maintaining production at its current level. So I said, it's about 700,000 right now. That's about half of the potential maximum. There's plenty of people who I think think that because of the fragility of the situation, it could fall back down to what it was during 2016. Further blockades could happen more conflict could, could make operations in, impossible. Mr. Sonala, on the, on the contrary, thinks that he, he's confident about the security which General Haftar provides and he's talking about increasing production up to 1 million barrels a day, even up to 1.25 mi, uh, million barrels a day. Whether he can succeed or not is at, over the next coming months is going to be absolutely crucial for the way that, that the dynamic of Everything in Libya develops because Libya is not wealthy. Five years ago, its its um, its foreign currency reserves were 110, 120 uh, billion dollars. They're now at the end of 2016. It was 43 billion. They've spent 60 more than 60 billion, 60, 70, perhaps 80 billion dollars of their currency reserves already uh, on massive budget deficits. This means they're paying for subsidies, they're paying for wages, they're not paying for development, they're not paying for investments, they're not building anything in the country. They are doing what I referred to at the beginning. They're dividing up their wealth and then just handing it out to the people to pay for cheap fuel, for cheap um, subsidised uh, staples for food uh, and, and wages. They're, they're wasting the resources of the country and, they're, and the, even if... Mr. Sonala succeeds in getting oil production up to um, if he maintains it at 700,000 barrels a day, what it is right now, and if the oil price stays at $55 um, a barrel, uh, over the coming year they will earn $14 billion. However, they passed a a budget, or sort of budget at the end of last year, which was roughly $26 billion at the official exchange rate. So you'll be looking at a 12- uh, billion dollars budget deficit the, the reserves would go down at the end of next year to 30, 30 billion uh, you don't have to do that very often before Libya's uh, going to be experiencing uh, a serious um, um, balance of payments crisis and you can already see some of the effects of that approaching crisis in, in the, the power cuts the, the shortages the, 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 the exchange rate um, the unofficial black market exchange rate which has uh, gone very, very, which is very different from, from, from the official exchange rate. Right? Already, these, these economic pressures are building because people can, anybody can do these sums. You don't have to be an expert. Anybody can see Libya is, is running out of money, and they can also see that the amount of money that the oil is able to earn to, 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 to prevent Libya from entering this serious era uh, of uh, fiscal. Crunch where they will simply not be able to afford to do any of the things they're doing now is approaching. You, a few years ago, people said, don't worry, Libya's got three or four years of, 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 of coverage on its, um, uh, on, on its uh, foreign currency reserves. You know, it can afford to, to have a year or two of crisis, and there's still plenty of money. They've probably got two years now, if they can stick to their budget, um, and if the um, oil production goes well. If oil production goes badly, they've probably got one year of coverage. What happens when the money really starts to run out? Uh, I mean, I said before that that if, you know, one of the leaders, some, someone like Haftar, you know, he, if he can gain control of resources, uh, he might be able to buy a, a, a broader coalition to, uh, to, to, to create some sort of movement that, that could govern the country. But if there are no resources to basically bribe your way to power, what are the, how are they going to achieve this? What is, what is the future? It's a very, very dangerous future. At Chatham House uh, a couple of days ago, Mr. Sonala also he, he put forward a, an extremely surprising suggestion. He said that National Oil Corporation had been waiting since 2012 for a legitimately elected government which could pass a new petroleum law, a new draft oil contract, uh, and then they were going to go out and invite foreign investors to come and participate in the sector. He said they're not going to wait anymore. They're going to take the the, the laws which they've prepared, and they've prepared them professionally. um, National Oil Corporation itself is effectively going to assume the, the, the prerogative of a government and go to the House of Representatives and say, here is our law, pass it, and we're going to start inviting foreign companies to come in to develop our oil. This is a recognition that National Oil Corporation itself does not have the resources to reinvest in oil production in order to, to, to provide the, the, the financial revenues that Libya needs. And that, but we should not um, kid ourselves. This is a, a, a desperate situation where someone like Mr. Sanala has to go and basically put himself in the position of a sort of he's created himself almost as, as oil minister almost as his own prime ministerial position you could argue to say here is a law which I am presenting as national law corporation to the parliament we need you to pass it because the alternative is that we, we will not be able to uh, provide the revenue which Libya needs in order to sustain itself well I think uh, I, might, I might leave you with that thought I think <laughs>